Welcome to Crime Time with Maggie Sten. What you're going to be listening to is a series of episodes called The Times Aren't Changing, They Have Changed. With me today is Daily Telegraph crime editor Mark Mori, who I have a lot of questions for. For those of you who don't know, Mark is a senior reporter and Mark began his career as a cadet on the Daily Mirror in the 1980s. Now, Mark, the Daily Mirror no longer exists. No, it doesn't. Um, Neither did the typewriters in the office that we used then. Neither did the cigarette machines that were used in there. What else has changed in the office before we get on to other stuff? Oh, well, we used to print the paper actually on site here in Holt Street in the city. It's now off site. Uh, you used to be hot metal. You used to have to run pieces of paper down to guys who would then chop up pieces of metal and make the paper. And that now I don't know how the newspaper comes out because it's done somewhere else and it's all done via computers. All right. But <laughs> let me ask you probably the most important question. Is that pub that all the journos went to still there? The Evening Star? Yes. Which we referred to as The Evil. Yes. And I'll tell you a funny story about The Evil. Um, It's still there. We don't go there anywhere near as much because we don't drink anywhere near as much. um, But when I, uh, at one stage, I had a a very brief executive role, let's say. And anyway, the um, managing editor called me in and he'd just taken over, going through all the bills. And he said, what's this phone account that we're paying for. Found Turned out we were paying rent on a special line purely for the journalists to use at the Evening Star Hotel. We paid the rent. Sounds good. You could page, and there was a paging system in the back of the pub saying, oh, you know, Mark Murray, you know. So the subs could ask you, because people were drinking from 11 11 a.m. till closing. So there was a PA system, a dedicated line that we paid for so that they could contact the journalists, they could fix up their copy, find out, you know, who was where. Do you think since the drinking was curtailed, the reporting of the news has declined? In some ways, um, sobriety, the first victim of sobriety between journalists and police has been trust in the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Because seriously, that was how you made all your contacts. Um, You went out drinking with, and even with lawyers, Yes. You know? um, but now the police don't drink as much, neither do journalists. Um, we do drink together, but there's nowhere near as much, which is a good thing. They're all living longer, and actually I think the police are doing a better job. Uh, just as an aside for the younger people who probably don't know, but in the 70s, if you were a woman cadet journalist, if such a thing even existed, did it? Yeah, it did. When I um, joined, I joined 1980. Yes, but let's go back to the early 70s. I think, no, I think you'll find there's been a strong female presence in reporting in in very limited roles. You know, the fashion editor. That's right. And all that. They were pigeonholed. But if one wanted to be a crime reporter, it would have been almost impossible because she wasn't allowed into the bar in the pub. No, you're, you're quite right. I don't think... The emergence of female crime reporters, I didn't really see until late 90s, yes. early 2000s. Like, to be recognised. I, I do re- No, there was one in the 80s. 
because I think it's 1974 or 1976 that the women's saloon was finally abolished and women could drink in the public bar. So that's a bit of news. So that's just one way the world has changed. Now, how old were you when you began your career as a cadet? Well, I started as a copy boy at 19, which basically entailed going and getting cigarettes, beer, everything for placing bets for the journalists. Sounds like a solicitor's article clerk. That's what article clerk That's what we do, put money in the parking meter. Although when I first started there, the head of security was a former cop called Bumper Farrell. Mm -hmm. So no one got booked within a mile radius. (laughs) I remember Bumper Farrell because he was at Darlinghurst. Mm, That's right. So he ended up being hired after he left the police force. Yes. And as I said, he was the security guard. Big, large, fat man. But obviously, no one got booked. You could park anywhere around the News Limited building. Right. And you did, and with impunity. Yeah. So it was, uh, again, that was just one of the spin-offs that we used to employ. Uh, we had all our drivers and we had a radio room. A lot of them were ex-police that obviously had done favours over the years or got to know journalists and um, got employed there when they either lost their job or retired. All right, which brings me to my next question. The journalists in those days, and we'll move on through the decades during this, were really everything that you reported on, every bit of news you got, every tip-off you got was from the police. Yes, it was. And and crooks, although I remember Billy Jenkins used to tell me he had one of his great informants was a guy he called Number One, right. who I now believe, and this is, is Len, was Lenny McPherson. Mm. Um, and that, so, but yes, it was always from the police, invariably in those days. There was not a media unit. No. There is now a media unit, which I refer to basically, it's almost a censorship unit. It's there to try and manage and all the information that the journalists get or what's put out about police. But yes, the tips came from nearly all crime tips would have come from police who they drank with. Yes. So do you think that the tips or a lot of the slant that you got on the cases might have been a prejudice towards the police? Without doubt. They were in favour. And sometimes... If you were like their own PR machine. Yeah. And they would also use you as an investigative tool. Mm-hmm. They would say, I remember one guy saying, mate, can you write... That they were looking for an armed hold-up bloke, and they said, can you write that he's, uh, we think he's gone to Queensland? Because then we think he might relax, and we know he's in Newtown somewhere. We just want him to stick his head out. Okay. So you got, we did get used, and that was it. That was the way it worked. Um, invariably, you wouldn't write about corrupt cops. No, because well, there they didn't was no exist. such thing. No, yes. there, that's yeah. right. Yeah, there was no such um, thing. So, yeah, there was. And I, I do know that there were, there were journalists that I, I met later on in life who said... Um, the corruption that existed in the New South Wales police force was enabled by the media. Right. Of the time. Right. Okay. We'll touch on this much later, but do you think that that still happens? No. It's really hard to be a crime reporter now, incredibly hard, because the police are more scared their phones are off from internal affairs than some of the crooks I talk to. I'm being really honest. Yeah. Um, I still have a relationship with quite a few police, a lot older, 
but the way I get stories is a lot more. It's a lot, a lot different. It's a little, a lot more sophisticated than going and getting on the piss with the cops at the Malaya or the Elizabeth Hotel. Sure, but has anything in the end result, meaning the article that's written, is it any different? The influence that the article has on the public and therefore the courts and juries, is it any different today? Yes, we're a lot more honest in our reporting about police misbehaviour. We are. Um, and the police are nowhere near as punitive if you dare write about a, a dodgy cop. Right. Whereas you wouldn't have done it in the 80s. You would have been sent to Coventry if you'd said so-and-so. Um, so I think the, the police are more transparent. We're a little bit better in the way we report things, right. which therefore I think would flow on to the court system, you know. Um, right, I think we should explain how it was a very different world in the 80s. Incredibly Particularly the criminal world. What were the main crimes in the 80s? It was predominantly old, armed hold-ups. Yes. With guns, obviously. And heroin was, was starting to emerge quite... Starting, pro- start. yes. SP bookmaking. Yes. I mean, let's face it, there's a reason why... Sydney was the last place to get a casino. It was because the politicians and senior cops were making so much money off illegal gambling. Yes. They didn't want a legal place. No. It wasn't because we were being so thorough before we issued a licence. It was because there were backhanders going all over this city. So the big crimes were armed hold-ups by the hardened crooks. Yes. Uh, heroin started emerging and dope, obviously. Yeah. We'll get to that yeah. in a minute, but let's go back to the armed hold-up So armed hold-up, there were... That was hit like there were 14, 15, 20 a day back then. Yes. It was incredible. And wasn't, there was a hierarchy of criminals as well. There were, yeah. And wasn't the top the safe cracker? The safe cracker was considered the the elite. Yes. Of the, you know, you, you talk about it, you're still, still alive now, I'm trying to think. Uh, Bernie, anyway. Um, yeah. He's, uh, so the safe cracker was considered the elite guy. Who? Today would be unemployed. That's right, and they are. And I think there's actually a wait for one of the last great safe crackers at a, a hotel in Piemont last year, and apparently, no, he was revered. Um, I even know one of one of my good mates was a guy who was in the special breaking squad, mm. who were guys that went after the safe crackers, and he said he admired them, and he'd say, "I knew they all had signatures," and um, he did say to me, "He said one day, he said I caught a bloke," and he said. You know, we're in the street. He said, I know you did that Westfield job. He said, I'm going to get you. He said, well, do your best. Yes. And he said, sometimes I, I think they were so good at their craft that I thought they should keep half the money even when they got caught, you know. Although back in the 80s, the cops kept half the money anyway. Yes. Um, so, yeah, the safe cracker was considered the, the elite. Followed by the bank robber. By the, by the bank robber, you know, they were... They were considered, because uh, they, you know, they, they were a bit more fearless in a lot of ways. See, the safe cracker was sophisticated. Yes. Um, it was I, the brains. I, I, I mean, my favourite story of, of safe cracking is obviously the great Chinese takeaway, which was done down here in Chinatown. And we'll explain. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, on, um, it was New Year's, a long weekend New Year, and these guys meticulously planned it. There was a suggestion that Michael Hurley was a very 
very well, great gangster. Yes. And a, a terrific guy, very clever. And so they've and got, now deceased. And now deceased, which makes it a lot easier to talk about him. Yeah. Um, he wasn't that, he a painter and docker too. Well, yeah, he yeah. he was down the wharves. Down though. the wharves, so yeah. a lot of them were. Yeah. So these guys um, chose the um, the bank in Chinatown. I think it's National Australia Bank. They chose the long weekend of New Year. Mm. It was and it was so elaborate. They had. Um, ladders and everything they got in tripwires and they got in to the safety deposit room but there was a massive safe there and but they emptied all the safety deposit boxes now that was full was mainly Chinese customers it was the year of the dragon so there were huge weddings so they think it was loaded with um with all sorts of jewellery, also illegal cash from the Chinese restaurants, yeah. uh, heroin that was also being brought in. But the grand prize, and I've only found this out in the last couple of years, was a me- mega safe with what they thought was a couple of million dollars. Anyway, they've had the safe crackers gone in. But this was so big. They bought their own oxys and everything through cameras. Like This was one of the most elaborate, beautiful jobs, except for when they blew the safe, they blew a million dollars up. <laughs> because they were putting water through to, to cool to cool the, the lance. Yeah. And it was one of the other great cops called uh, uh, Johnny Davidson who told me this story eventually. He said, we got in and there is all this money splattered is to the wall. Is that the same the Johnny Davidson who then became a barrister? No, different one. There, okay. are, two, there are two Johnny Davidson, yeah. one sued us successfully. Right. Um, <laughs> saying, getting it mixed up. Yeah. So, so that's, that was the safe cracker story. It was a great story. To this day, no one knows who did it did it. I was always fascinated because they'd even taken the cut sandwiches and left some of their sandwiches behind. <laughs> you know, in the days now, I'm thinking, I wonder if they stored that and there's DNA. Yeah, um, exactly. Well, there was no DNA. There was no DNA. There was no telephone intercepts. Oh, telephone intercepts had yeah, just were, started with the age were, tapes. There was no Howard way. Hilton and the yeah. age tapes. But that was, oh, that was early to mid-80s. They could do phone tapping. But they but, didn't. But it was, you know, and it was never... In real, real time, no. a lot of the time, they couldn't triangulate where you are now and say, we know you were there because, or at least we know your phone was there. Yes. None of that. None yeah. of that mobile phone. So police detection has changed dramatically. Yeah. And so the, it, it, it was on the side of the crook then. Oh, yeah. It was really easy to be a criminal. It was. And serial killers. And that, it was much easier to be a criminal lawyer too because you could get people <laughs> off a lot well, easier. And it was also, I, I do know perhaps that there was the odd... Um, court officer that maybe had brown paper bags delivered yes. and there wasn't sandwiches in them, yes. I'm telling you now. Yes, yes. No cases yes. like and that. And the odd magistrate. And the odd magistrate. Yes. And I think yeah. that happened quite a lot. Now, you know, I know a guy that said he, he did time for a, a gangster who's still alive. The guy who did it is, is now dead. He said, I should have done about seven years for this guy, but paper bag went up. He said, I only did 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Because 30000 was to get it reduced yeah. heavily. I think it was very popular around, um, well, in those days, magistrates' court was, courts were called police courts in the suburbs. That's right. I think that was very popular. It was all prearranged. Everything was done by 10.30 and everyone was in the local pub. That's, yeah. I remember just not far from where we're sitting. Um, if I wanted to get a police, somebody's record or something, I'd meet them at the Elizabeth Hotel at 11 o'clock when it opened and they'd give me a printout, yeah. the officers, and I'd just have to buy beer and we were kicking off at 11 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, one of the big cases that you covered in the 80s was the Father's Day Massacre. 
Tell us about that. What was it? So I was quite young, well, 24. Uh, we're in a Father's Day at the backyard when my the phone went at my parents' place, and it was my chief of staff in the afternoon. Said you've got to go to so you've got to go out to Montpera. There's been this big biking massacre, which we didn't know it was a biking match, just mass shooting. And um, the reason why I was sent there at so young was because most of the other guys were pissed because it was Father's Day and they were all on the drink. So yeah. I got sent out there. And when I got out there, the bodies had been removed, but there were bikies still going around everywhere. No one had been arrested. There was blood everywhere. And I do distinctly remember I found a friendly cop and he, and he showed me and he said that's where the 15-year-old girl who was hit by a stray bullet, he said that's, that's the remains of, of some of her organs. And so that kind of still sticks in my head. Um, it was frightening. I was out there all night. Um, I was young and stupid, so when the boss, I would ring in, he'd say, the banditos are at Bankstown Hospital. I want you to go there and uh, talk to them. It was the banditos? The banditos and the Comanchero. That's right. I mean, yeah. it's, it was, you know, in those that, to be quite honest, the Comanchero was started by a guy called Jock Ross, who's still alive. Yes. And they literally were, I would say, cubby house boys with motorbikes and guns. You know, they literally were a, a semi-paramilitary. They really, they were not organised crime. But the banditos were established organised crime over in America. Some guys had been there and wanted to split, and that's where the tension they, started. Can I stop you there? It's correct, isn't it, that the banditos were a split from the Hells Angels in America? Well, nearly everybody grew from the Hells Angels. Well, they were the it, first. It, they were the first. Out the banditos, gang yeah, ever. Yeah, so that's, ha that's how it happened. A couple of guys went to America, and so to be... I'd say that is the beginning of organised bikey crime. Right. Now, the Comanchero then, they weren't really, they weren't organised crime. And I do remember one of the first guys on the scene is now dead, is a, a copper called Mick McGann, who um, it was fantastic. And he said to me, we should have stomped on them then. And we never did. And that is now, the New South Wales police did not act. They didn't know what they had. Right. They just thought these guys were... They, they, they had no concept of what that eventually became, and that is the problem we have today. Well, again, for people who don't know, and particularly younger people, the outlaw motorcycle gang that you're talking about in the 80s, the Comancheras, they actually rode bikes. Yeah, they did. They were predominantly Anglos. Them and the rebels, yes. Yes, they were They were, they were white, racist. They were white <laughs> Anglos, yes. right? But they were they were really like a bikey version of a cowboy. They yeah, that's not a that's a, a good way to put it. Yeah. And they they reveled in that notoriety yes. of being bad boys. Yes, yes. Whereas today they're all nationalities. It's very rare to even see an Anglo. Half of them don't have bikes. No, they're called the Nike bike. Yeah, they wouldn't know how to ride a horse, let alone a motorbike. <laughs> True. And, and they dress in designer gear. That's right. It's changed so dramatically. Covering, covering that bikey massacre and the subsequent trial, I'll never forget seeing Chris Murphy in his undies changing it out of Penrith Courthouse because it was so hot. You'd, get, you'd go out there. 
and he'd get changed in the car park into his suit where he went in, and I think he was representing the banditos. That trial went for a year. Oh, it was, and it had to be held at Penrith for the security reasons. Yes. Um, and there's still one guy in witness protection, even to this day, who snitched on certain people. So it, it, was, it was fascinating. And it's now, to see what I'm doing now with the bikies, mm. it's, it's like I didn't talk to them, but there are bikies now that some will like to talk. Whereas back then they had a, they didn't talk to journalists. Um, yeah, but because they weren't they you're right they were they as I said they were they were just it was cubby house stuff. But in those days, generally, snitching wasn't an Australian national pastime like it now is now. It's, yeah. Well, I was talking to a very well known criminal identity. I can't say. He said, "You can't buy the cops anymore now with money." You buy them with information. Exactly. exactly. That's why our, our yeah. New South Wales Crime Commission yeah. exists. Yeah. Lives yeah. off it. Yeah. So that he said the credit card is dobbing in somebody. That's your yeah. kitching. Yeah, and and in fact, it's very interesting because most of the um, most of the legislation that's put out for sentencing and for trials actually encourages it. That's right. Discount. Yeah. Discount. Big just the discount. The more you snitch, the less sentence you get. Yeah, that's right. And the younger ones wouldn't have a clue. The bikies today wouldn't know anything. The word staunch, it was the word of the... Now you talk to an old crooked yeah, mate, he's staunch. Yes. They couldn't spell it now. <laughs> it's and it's no not matter, in their vocabulary. And no matter how many tattoos they have with brothers in arms and all that other stuff. Yeah, no, it's a, a totally different world. Okay, so just before we finish up... It was in the 80s that drugs came along. You said it began with heroin and then more drugs. That's right. Heroin started, the the amount of money being made from heroin began in the 80s. David Kelleher was probably the first guy. I mean, there's another guy who's still kicking around. That's one of the saddest cases. David David Kelleher is now Dolores. Okay, but before (laughs) David became Dolores, what was incredibly sad about that case, and I remember because he did a long time in jail. 25. And he came out and he was on work release and he committed the next crime and he went straight back in. He was Sally Ann Huckstep's great love. Yeah. Yeah, and apparently an incredibly smart, educated person. Everyone I've I've spoken to him a few times. Yeah. Uh, and recently, he's living in fear. He's, as I said, he's no longer Dave. He's actually um, a woman or yeah. dresses. Yeah. Partly, I think, to because he's still very paranoid that he's a marked man or woman, as you would say. Right. I don't know. But yeah, at a very, again, you, you find that though, don't you? Mm. With, that some of these crooks are charismatic, clever, um, not just great company, but very good minds. Yes. Um, but either a person like him, I'm wondering why he did it, more probably for the adrenaline. I don't know. Adrenaline and money, all sorts of things. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it for them. We will come back next time in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs>